0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters seven to nine from A Journey to the
1: Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 7 Conversation and Discovery
0: When I returned, dinner was ready. This meal was devoured by my worthy relative with avidity and veracity. His shipboard diet had turned his interior into a perfect gulf. The repast, which was more Danish than Icelandic, was in itself nothing, but the excessive hospitality of our host made us enjoy it doubly. The conversation turned upon scientific matters, and M. Fredrickson asked my uncle what he thought of the public library. Library, sir, cried my uncle. It appeared to me a collection of useless old volumes and a beggarly amount of empty shelves. What? cried Mr. Fredrickson. Why, we have eight thousand volumes of the most rare and valuable works, some in the Scandinavian language, besides all the new publications from Copenhagen. Eight thousand volumes, my dear sir, why, where are they? cried my uncle. Scattered over the country, Professor Hardwig. We are very studious, my dear sir, though we do live in Iceland. Every farmer, every labourer, every fisherman can both read and write, and we think that books, instead of being locked up in cupboards far from the sight of students, should be distributed as widely as possible. The books of our library are therefore passed from hand to hand without returning to the library shelves, perhaps for years. Then when foreigners visit you, there is nothing for them to see. Well, sir, foreigners have their own libraries, and our first consideration is that our humbler classes should be highly educated. Fortunately, the love of study is innate in the Icelandic people. In 1816, we founded the Literary Society and Mechanics Institute. Many foreign scholars of eminence are honorary members. We publish books destined to educate our people and these books have rendered valuable services to our country. Allow me to have the honour, Professor Hardwig, to enrol you as an honorary member. My uncle, who already belonged to nearly every literary and scientific institution in Europe, immediately yielded to the amiable wishes of good Mr. Fredrickson. And now, he said, after many expressions of gratitude and goodwill, if you will tell me what books you expected to find, perhaps I may be of some assistance to you. I watched my uncle keenly, For a minute or two he hesitated, as if unwilling to speak. To speak openly was, perhaps, to unveil his projects. Nevertheless, after some reflections, he made up his mind. Well, Mr. Fredrickson, he said in an easy, unconcerted kind of way, I was desirous of ascertaining, if among other valuable works, you had any of the learned Arnie Sacknorsum. Arnie Sacknorsum? cried the professor of Reykjavik. You speak of one of the most distinguished scholars of the sixteenth century, of the great naturalist, the great alchemist. A great traveller. Exactly so. One of the most distinguished men connected with Icelandic science and literature. As you say, sir, a man illustrious above all. Yes, sir, all this is true. But his works, we have none of them. None in Iceland. There are none in Iceland or elsewhere, answered the other, sadly. Why so? Because Arni Sacknorsum was persecuted for heresy, and in 1573 his works were publicly burnt at Copenhagen by the hands of common hangmen. Very good, capital, murmured my uncle to the great astonishment of the worthy icelander you said sir yes yes all is clear i see the link in the chain everything is explained and now i understand why arni sakknorson put out of court forced to hide his magnificent discoveries was compelled to conceal beneath the veil of an incomprehensible cryptograph, the secret. What secret? A secret, which, stammered my uncle. Have you discovered some wonderful manuscript? cried Mr. Fredrickson. No, no, I was carried away by my enthusiasm, a mere supposition. Very good, sir, but... Really, to turn to another subject, I hope you will not leave our island without examining into its mineralogical riches. Well, the fact is, I am rather late. So many learned men have been here before me. Yes, yes, but there is still
1: much to be done, cried Mr. Fridrickson. You think so,
0: said my uncle, his eyes twinkling with hidden satisfaction. Yes, you have no idea how many unknown mountains, glaciers, volcanoes there are which remain to be studied. Without moving from where we sit, I can show you one. Yonder on the edge of the horizon. You see Sneffles. Oh yes, Sneffles, said my uncle. One of the most curious volcanoes in existence, the crater of which has been rarely visited. Extinct. Extinct any time these five hundred years was the ready reply. Well, said my uncle, who dug his nails into his flesh and pressed his knees tightly together to prevent himself from leaping up with joy. I have a great mind to begin my studies with an examination of the geological mysteries of this Mount Seffal, fezzle. what do you call it? Sneffels, my dear sir. This portion of the conversation took place in Latin, and I therefore understood all that had been said. I could scarcely keep my countenance when I found my uncle so cunningly concealing his delight and satisfaction. I must confess that his artful grimaces put on to conceal his happiness— made him look like a new Mephistopheles. Yes, yes, he continued. Your proposition delights me. I will endeavor to climb to the summit of Sneffels, and, if possible, will descend into the crater. I very much regret, continued M. Fredrickson, that my occupation will be entirely preclude the possibility of my accompanying you. It would have been both pleasurable and profitable if I could have spared the time. No, no, a thousand times no, cried my uncle. I do not wish to disturb the serenity of any man. I thank you, however. With all my heart, the presence of one so learned as yourself would no doubt have been most useful, but the duties of your office and profession before everything. In the innocence of his simple heart, our host did not perceive the irony of these remarks. I entirely approve your project, continued the Icelander after some further remarks. It is a good idea to begin examining this volcano. You will make a harvest of curious observations. In the first place, how do you propose to get to Sneffels? By sea, I shall cross the bay. Of course that is the most rapid route. Of course, but still it cannot be done. Why? We have not an available boat in Reykjavik, replied the other. What is to be done? You must go by land along the coast. It is longer, but much more interesting. Then I must have a guide. Of course, and I have your very man. Somebody on whom I can depend. Yes, an inhabitant of the peninsula on which Sneffels is situated. He is a very shrewd and worthy man, with whom you will be pleased. He speaks
1: Danish like a Dane. When can I see him? Today. No, tomorrow. He will not be here before. Tomorrow be it, replied
0: my uncle with a deep sigh. The conversation ended by compliments on both sides. During the dinner, my uncle had learned much as to the history of Arnie Sorknazem, the reasons for his mysterious and hieroglyphic document. He also became aware that his host would not accompany him on his adventurous expedition and that next day we should have a guide.
1: Chapter 8 The Ederdown Hunter Off at Last
0: That evening I took a brief walk on the shore near Reykjavik, after which I returned to an early sleep on my bed of planks, where I slept the sleep of the just. When I awoke, I heard my uncle speaking loudly in the next room. I rose hastily and joined him. He was talking in Danish with a man of tall stature and of perfectly Herculean build. This man appeared to be possessed of very great strength. His eyes, which started rather prominently from a very large head, the face belonging to which was simple and naive, appeared very quick and intelligent. Very long hair, which even in England would have been accounted exceedingly red, fell over his athletic shoulders. This native of Iceland was active and supple in appearance, though he scarcely moved his arms, being in fact one of those men who despise the habit of gesticulation common to southern people. Everything in the man's manner revealed a calm and phlegmatic temperament. There was nothing indolent about him, but his appearance spoke of tranquility. He was one of those who never seemed to expect anything from anybody, who liked to work when he thought proper and whose philosophy nothing could astonish or trouble. I began to comprehend his character, simply from the way in which he listened to the wild and impassioned verbiage of my worthy uncle. While the excellent professor spoke sentence after sentence, he stood with folded arms, utterly still, Motionless to all my uncle's gesticulations. When he wanted to say no, he moved his head from left to right. When he acquiesced, he nodded so slightly that you could scarcely see the undulation of his head. This economy of motion was carried to the length of avarice. Judging from his appearance, I should have been a long time before I had suspected him to be what he was, a mighty hunter. Certainly his manner was not likely to frighten the game. How, then, did he contrive to get at his prey? My surprise was slightly modified when I knew that this tranquil and solemn personage was only a hunter of the Eider duck, the down of which is, after all, the greatest source of Icelanders'
1: wealth. In the early days of summer,
0: the female of the Eider, a pretty sort of duck, builds its nest amid the rocks of the fjords. The name given to all narrow gulfs in Scandinavian countries, with which every part of the island is indented. No sooner has the eider duck made her nest than she lines the inside of it with the softest down from her breast. Then comes the hunter or trader, taking away the nest, the poor bereaved female. Begins her task over again, and this continues as long as any eater down is to be found. When she can find no more, the male bird sets to work to see what he can do. As, however, his down is not so soft and has therefore no commercial value, the hunter does not. Take the trouble to rob him of his nest lining. The nest is accordingly finished, the eggs are laid, the little ones are born, and next year the harvest of Eder down is again collected. Now, as the Eder duck never selects steep rocks or aspects to build its nest, but rather sloping. And low cliffs near to the sea, the Icelandic hunter can carry on his trade operations without much difficulty. He is like a farmer who has neither to plough nor sow nor to harrow, only to collect his harvest. This grave, sententious, silent person as phlegmatic as an Englishman on the French stage, was named Hans Bjelk. He had called upon us in consequence of the recommendation of Mr. Fridrickson. He was, in fact, our future guide. It struck me that had I sought the world over, I could not have found a greater contradiction to my impulsive uncle. They, however, readily understood one another. Neither of them had any thought about money. One was ready to take all that was offered him, the other ready to offer anything that was asked. It may be readily conceived, then, that an understanding was soon to come between them. Now, the understanding was that he was to take us to the village of Stapi, situated on the southern slope of the peninsula of Sneffels, at the very foot of the volcano. Hans, the guide, told us the distance was about twenty-two miles. A journey which my uncle supposed would take about two days. But when my uncle came to understand that they were Danish miles of eight thousand yards each, he was obliged to be more moderate in his ideas, and, considering the horrible roads we had to follow, to allow eight to ten days for the journey.
1: Four horses
0: were prepared for us, two to carry the baggage and two to bear the important weight of myself and uncle. Hans declared that nothing ever would make him climb on the back of any animal. He knew every inch of that part of the coast and promised to take us the very shortest way. His engagement with my uncle was by no means to cease with our arrival at Stappi. He was further to remain in his service during the whole time required for the completion of his scientific investigations. At the fixed salary, of three rix dollars a week, being exactly fourteen shillings and two pence, minus one farthing, English currency. One stipulation, however, was made by the guide. The money was to be paid to him every Saturday night, failing which, his engagement was at an end. The day of our departure was fixed. My uncle wished to hand the Edda down Hunter an advance, but he refused in one emphatic word. Efter, which, being translated from Icelandic into plain English, means "after." The
1: treaty concluded. Our worthy guide
0: retired without another word. A splendid fellow, said my uncle. Only he little suspects the marvellous part he is about to play in the history of the world. You mean then, I cried in amazement, that he should accompany us to the interior of the earth? Yes replied my uncle. Why not? There were yet 48 hours to elapse before we made our final start. To my great regret, our whole time was taken up in making preparations for our journey. All our industry and ability were devoted to packing every object in the most advantageous manner. The instruments on one side, the arms on the other, the tools here and the provisions there. There were, in fact, four distinct groups. The instruments were, of course, of the best manufacture. 1. A centigrade thermometer of eagle counting up to a hundred and fifty degrees, which to me did not appear half enough, or too much. Too hot by half, if the degree of heat was to ascend so high, in which case we should certainly be cooked. Not enough, if we wanted to ascertain the exact temperature of springs or metals in a state of fusion. Two, A manometer worked by compressed air, an instrument used to ascertain the upper atmospheric pressure on the level of the ocean. Perhaps a common barometer would not have done as well, the atmospheric pressure being likely to increase in proportion as we descended below the surface of the Earth. 3. A first-class chronometer made by Boissanas, a Geneva, set at the meridian of Hamburg, from which Germans calculate, as the English do from Greenwich, and the French from Paris. 4. Two compasses, one for horizontal guidance, the other to ascertain the dip. 5.
1: A night glass. 6.
0: Two Rumkorff coils, which, by means of a current of electricity, would ensure us a very excellent, easily carried, and certain means of obtaining light. 7. A voltaic battery on the
1: newest principle. 1. Footnote
0: Thermometer, thermos, and metron, measure, an instrument for measuring the temperature of the air. Manometer, manos, and metron, measure, an instrument to show the density or rarity of gases. Chronometer, chronos,
1: time, and metros, measure, a time
0: measure, a superior watch. Rumkopf's coil, an instrument for producing currents of induced electricity of great intensity. It consists of a coil of copper wire, insulated by being covered with silk, surrounded by another coil of fine wire also insulated, in which a momentary current is induced when a current is passed through the inner coil from a voltaic battery. When the apparatus is in action, the gas becomes luminous and produces a white and continued light. The battery and wire are carried in a leather bag, which the traveller fastens by a strap his shoulders. The lantern is in front and enables the benighted wanderer to see the most profound obscurity. He may venture without fear of explosion into the midst of the most inflammable gases, and the lantern will burn beneath the deepest waters. H. D. Rumkorf. An able and learned chemist discovered the induction coil. In 1864, he won the quinquennial French prize of £2,000 for this ingenious application of electricity. A voltaic battery, so called from Volta, its designer, is an apparatus consisting of a series of metal plates arranged in pairs and subjected to action of saline solutions and producing currents of electricity. Our arms consisted of two rifles with two revolving six-shooters. Why these arms were provided, it was impossible for me to say. I had every reason to believe that we had neither wild beast nor people to fear. My uncle, on the other hand, was quite as devoted to his arsenal as to his collection of instruments, and above all was very careful with his provision of fulminating gun cotton warranted to keep in any climate and of which the expansive force was known to be greater than that of ordinary gunpowder. Our tools consisted of two pickaxes, two crowbars, a silken ladder, three iron-shod alpine poles, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges, some pointed pieces of iron and a quantity of strong rope. You may conceive that the hole made a tolerable parcel, especially when I mention that the ladder itself was three hundred feet long. Then there came the important question of provisions. The hamper was not very large, but tolerably satisfactory, for I knew that in concentrated essence of meat and biscuit there was enough to last six months. The only liquid provided by my uncle was skeedum, of water not a drop. We had, however, an ample supply of gourds, And my uncle counted on finding water and enough to fill them as soon as we commenced our downward journey. My remarks as to the temperature, the quality, and even as to the possibility of none being found remained wholly without effect. To make up the exact list of our travelling gear. For the guidance of future travellers, add that we carried a medicine and surgical chest with all apparatus necessary for wounds, fractures and blows, lint, scissors, lancets, in fact a perfect collection of horrible looking instruments, a number of vials containing ammonia Alcohol, ether, golet water, aromatic vinegar. In fact, every possible and impossible drug. Finally, all the materials for working the Rumkorf coil. My uncle had also been careful to lay in a goodly supply of tobacco several flasks of very fine gunpowder, boxes of tinder besides a large belt crammed full of notes and gold. Good boots rendered watertight were to be found to the number of six in the toolbox. My boy, with such clothing, with such boots... And such general equipment, said my uncle, in a state of rapturous delight, we may hope to travel far. It took a whole day to put all these matters in order. In the evening we dined with Baron Tramp, in company with the mayor of Reykjavik and Dr. Hatlin the great medical man of Iceland. Mr. Fridriksson was not present, and I was afterwards sorry to hear that he and the governor did not agree on some matters connected with the administration of the island. Unfortunately, the consequence was that I did not understand a word that was said at dinner a kind of semi-official reception. One thing I can say, my uncle never
1: left off speaking. The next
0: day, our labour came to an end. Our worthy host delighted my uncle, Professor Hardwig, by giving him a good map of Iceland, a most important and precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in a long conversation with Mr. Fridrickson, whom I liked very much, the more that I never expected to see him or anyone else again. After this agreeable way of spending an hour or so, I tried to sleep. In vain, with the exception of a few dozes, my night was miserable. At five o'clock in the morning, I was awakened from the only real half hour's sleep of the night by the loud neighing of horses under my window. I hastily dressed myself and went down into the street. Hans was engaged in putting the finishing stroke to our baggage, which he did in a silent, quiet way that won my admiration, and yet he did it admirably well. My uncle wasted a great deal of breath in giving him directions, but worthy Hans took not the slightest notice of his words. At six o'clock all our preparations were completed and Mr. Fridriksson shook hands heartily with us. My uncle thanked him warmly in the Icelandic language for his kind hospitality, speaking truly from the heart. As for myself... I put together a few of my best Latin phrases and paid him the highest compliments I could. This fraternal and friendly duty performed, we sallied forth and mounted our horses. As soon as we were quite ready, Mr. Fredrickson advanced and by way of farewell, called after me in the words of Virgil, words which appeared to have been made for us, travellers starting for an uncertain destination. Et, quanque, vium derdrit, fortuna, sequamu. And whichsoever way thou goest, may fortune
1: follow. Chapter 9 Our Start We Meet With Adventures By The Way
0: The weather was overcast but settled when we commenced our adventurous and perilous journey. We had neither to fear fatigue, heat nor drenching rain. It was, in fact, real tourist weather. As there was nothing I liked better than horse exercise, the pleasure of riding through an unknown country caused the early part of our enterprise to be particularly agreeable to me. I began to enjoy the exhilarating delight of travelling, a life of desire, gratification and liberty. The truth is that my spirits rose so rapidly that I began to be indifferent to what had once appeared to be a terrible journey. After all,
1: I said to myself, what do I risk?
0: Simply to take a journey to a curious country, to climb a remarkable mountain and if the worst comes to the worst, to descend into the crater of an extinct volcano, there could be no doubt that this was all this terrible Sacknorsum had done. As to the existence of a gallery, or of a subterraneous passage leading into the interior of the earth, the idea was simply absurd, the hallucination of a distempered imagination. All, then, that may be required of me, I will do cheerfully and will create no difficulty. It was just before we left Reykjavik
1: that I came to this decision. Hands.
0: Our extraordinary guide went first, walking with a steady, rapid, unvarying step. Our two horses with the luggage followed of their own accord, without requiring whip or spur. My uncle and I came behind, cutting a very tolerable figure upon our small but vigorous animals. Iceland is one of the largest islands in Europe. It contains 30,000 square miles of surface and had about 70,000 inhabitants. Geographers have divided it into four parts and we had to cross the southwest quarter, which in the vernacular is called Sudvesta Fjordunga. Hans, on taking his departure from Reykjavik, had followed the line of the sea. We took our way through poor and sparse meadows, which made a desperate effort every year to show a little green. They very rarely succeeded in a good show of yellow. The rugged summits of the rocky hills were dimly visible on the edge of the horizon, through the misty fogs. Every now and then, some heavy flakes of snow showed conspicuous in the morning light, while certain lofty and pointed rocks were first lost in the grey, low clouds, their summits clearly visible above like jagged reefs rising from a troublous sea. Every now and then a spur of rock came down through the arid ground, leaving us scarcely room to pass. Our horses, however, appeared not only well acquainted with the country, but by a kind of instinct knew which was the best road. My uncle had not even the satisfaction of urging forward his steed by whip, spur or voice. It was utterly useless to show any signs of impatience. I could not help smiling to see him look so big on his little horse. His long legs now and then touching the ground... "'made him look like a six-footed centaur. "'Good beast, good beast,' he would cry. "'I assure you that I begin to think no animal is more intelligent than an Icelandic horse. "'Snow, tempest, impractical roads, rocks,
1: icebergs. "'Nothing stops him.' He is
0: brave, he is sober, he is safe, he never makes a false step, he never glides or slips from his path. I dare to say that if any river, any fjord has to be crossed, and I have no doubt there will be many, you will see him enter the water without hesitation like an amphibious animal. "'and reach the opposite side in safety. "'We must not, however, attempt to hurry him. "'We must allow him to have his own way, "'and I will undertake to say that between us "'we shall do our ten leagues a day.' "'We may do so,' was my reply. "'But what about our worthy guide?' I have not the slightest anxiety about him. That sort of people go ahead without knowing even what they are about. Look at Hans. He moves so little that it is impossible for him to become fatigued. Besides, if he were to complain of weariness, he could have the loan of my horse. I should have a violent attack of the cramp if I were not to have some sort of exercise. My arms are right, but my legs are getting a little stiff. All this while were we advancing at a rapid pace. The country we had reached was already nearly a desert. Here and there could be seen an isolated farm, some solitary burr or Icelandic house, built of wood, earth, fragments of lava, looking like beggars on the highway of life. These wretched and miserable huts excited us in such pity that we felt half disposed To leave elms at every door. In this country there are no roads, Paths are nearly unknown, And vegetation, poor as it was, Slowly as it reached perfection, Soon obliterated all traces Of the few travellers who passed from place to place. Nevertheless, this division of the province Situated only a few miles from the capital, is considered one of the best cultivated and most thickly peopled in all Iceland. What, then, must be the state of the less known and more distant parts of the island? After travelling fully half a Danish mile... We had met neither a farmer at the door of his hut, nor even a wandering shepherd with his wild and savage frock. A few stray cows and sheep were only seen occasionally. What, then, must we expect when we come to the upheave regions, to the districts broken and roughened? From volcanic eruptions and subterraneous commotions. We were to learn this all in good time. I saw, however, on consulting the map, that we would avoid a good deal of this rough country by following the winding and desolate shores of the sea. In reality, The great volcanic movement of the island and all its attendant phenomena are concentrated in the interior of the island. There, horizontal layers of strata of rock piled one upon the other. Eruptions of balsetic origin and streams of lava have given this country a kind of supernatural reputation. Little did I expect, however, the spectacle which awaited us when we reached the peninsula of Sneffels, where agglomerations of nature's ruins from a kind of terrible chaos... Some two hours or more after we had left the city of Reykjavik, we reached the little town of al or the Principal Church. It consists simply of a few houses, not what in England or Germany we should call a hamlet. Hans stopped here one half hour. He shared our frugal breakfast, answered yes and no to my uncle's questions as to the nature of the road. And at last, when asked where we were to pass the night, was iconic as ever. Garda was his one-worded reply. I took occasion to consult the map to see where Garda was to be found. After looking keenly, I found a small town of that name on the borders of Hafjord, about four miles from Reykjavik. I pointed this out to my uncle, who made a very energetic grimace. Only four miles out of twenty-two, Why, it is only a little walk. He was about to make some energetic observation to the guide, but Hans, without taking the slightest notice of him, went in front of the horses and walked ahead with the same imperturbable phlegm he had always exhibited. Three hours later... Still travelling over those apparently interminable and sandy prairies, we were compelled to go round Colerfjord, an easier and shorter cut than crossing the gulfs. Shortly after we entered a place of communal jurisdiction called Elgeberg, and the clock of which would then have struck twelve, if any Icelandic church had been rich enough to possess so valuable and useful an article. These sacred edifices are, however, very much like these people who do without watches and never miss them. Here the horses were allowed to take some rest and refreshment, Then, following a narrow strip of shore between high rocks and the sea, they took us without further halt to the Alcuria of Brantar, and after another mile of sober Annexia, a chapel of ease situated on the southern bank of Halfjord. It was four o'clock in the evening, And we had travelled four Danish miles, about equal to twenty English. The fjord was in this place about half a mile in width. The sweeping and broken waves came rolling in upon the pointed rocks. The gulf was surrounded by rocky walls. A mighty cliff, three thousand feet in height, Remarkable for its brown strata, separated here and there by beds of tougher and of reddish hue. Now, whatever may have been the intelligence of our horses, I had not the slightest reliance upon them as a means of crossing a stormy arm of the sea, to ride over salt water. "'upon the back of a little horse seemed to me absurd. "'If they are really intelligent,' I said to myself, "'they will certainly not make the attempt. "'In any case, I shall trust rather to my own intelligence than theirs.' "'My uncle was in no humour to wait.' He dug his heels into the sides of his steed and made for the shore. His horse went to the very edge of the water, sniffed at the approaching wave and retreated. My uncle, who was, sooth to say, quite an obstinate as the beast he bestrode, insisted on his making the desired advance. This attempt was followed by a new refusal on the part of the horse, which quietly shook his head. This demonstration of rebellion was followed by a volley of words and a stout application of whipcord, also followed by kicks on the part of the horse, which threw its head and heels upwards and tried to throw his rider. At length the surdy little pony, spread out his legs in a stiff and ludicrous attitude, got from under the professor's legs and left him standing with both feet on a separate stone like a colossus of roads. Wretched animal, cried my uncle, suddenly transformed into a foot passenger and as angry and ashamed as a dismounted cavalry officer on the field of battle. Fire, said the guide, tapping him familiarly on the shoulder.
1: What, a ferry boat," Duh, answered Hans, pointing to where lay the boat in question. There. Well, I cried
0: quite delighted with the information. So it is. Why did you not say so before? cried my uncle. Why not start at once? Tidvatin said the guide. What does he say? I asked, considerably puzzled by the delay and the dialogue. He said tide, replied my uncle translating the Danish word for my information. Of course, I understand. We must wait till the tide serves.
1: Forbidder? asked my uncle. Ja,
0: replied Hans. My uncle frowned, stamped his feet, and then followed the horses to where the boat lay. I thoroughly understood and appreciated the necessity for waiting before crossing the fjord for that moment when the sea is at its highest point is in a state of slack water as neither the ebb nor flow can then be felt the ferry boat was in no danger of being carried out to sea or dashed upon the rocky coast The favourable moment did not come until six o'clock in the evening. Then my uncle, myself and guide, two boatmen and the four horses, got into a very awkward, flat-bottomed boat. Accustomed as I had been to the steam ferry boats of Elby, I found the long oars of the boatmen but sorry means of locomotion. We were more than an hour in crossing the fjord, but at length the passage was concluded without accident. Half an hour
1: later we reached Garda.